Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project that I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Ed knew every bit of Johnny's personality, every bit of it, because Ed has a similar personality. Very narcissistic, very self-centered, only thinks about himself. And, and when you have two guys like that, both very successful, it led to Johnny saying, screw it, I'm done with this, close it down. Welcome back to Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very exciting times here with my guest today, Henry Bushkin. I am very, very excited. But first, I'd like to tell a little story that sort of is a sixth degree of separation to my guest in my own life. I started going to college in Boston, and I quickly was involved in running a comedy club called Play It Again Sam's, which was a very weird place in a sense it had four entities inside it had a pub where there was a guitar player in a corner underneath a television set who played inside the bar and entertained that little small area of people there was a restaurant in the middle there was a movie bar on the other side which was larger that had couches and tables and this is before dvd and video or digital entertainment the owner of the club would rent films and he would play them like for instance if there's a movie that you know of let's say that's coming out on dvd or released on whatever digital platform and you know it's going to be released in so many weeks after the movie is taken out of the theaters back then this guy hired the actual movies and had them sent to him and played them in there for the people so you could see these movies and there was no charge and he would serve food and alcohol and and then downstairs was the comedy club which i ran which was a really amazing place which for those of you who know me and know about me and you know i had shows with everybody from bob goldthwaite to dennis leary to anthony clark to lenny clark to paula poundstone to jonathan katz who created dr katz janine garofalo and one particular artist that I would do anything in the world to book was the first comedian that I'd ever, ever seen in my life alive, and that was Stephen Wright. And Stephen was the kind of uh, artist that was a lot like he was on stage. He was very quiet, very reserved, didn't say a lot, 
And and maybe that's why every single comedian in Boston had more respect for him than anybody else because he was a man of little words but huge actions and his comedy was extraordinary and like no other comedy that anybody had ever seen before. And here we were in Boston being witnessed to and I was being witnessed to and I would pay him more than any other comedian for a set on the stage at Playing Against Sam's, which at the time in the 80s was $45. And Boston was a unique town for comedy because it was born out of the bars. When you go to see comedy now in whatever city or country you're in, normally what happens is is that there's a bar outside of the comedy club or the venue that's sort of a service bar in an area, and you actually have a showroom where there's no distractions. It's just the person on stage and the audience. But in Boston, when comedy started and the boom happened, the comedy boom happened, you had comedy clubs that were being built within bars, and it was a big sports city. So you were in a situation where you would have to perform sometimes and a Celtics game would be playing in the background or a Bruins game or a Red Sox game. And a lot of times they didn't turn off the volume that much. And even when they did turn off the volume, you'd be doing your comedy and all of a sudden there'd be like an enormous uproar, like literally like picture yourself in a hockey arena when your home team scores a goal. And that's what you'd be doing. So you'd be in the middle of a, you'd be in the middle of your act, and the front of the room would be listening, and the back of the room would be cheering when a goal happened or when Larry Bird hit the winning shot or whatever. But it made the comedians tougher and greater, and we were starting to get more respect in Boston for the kind of comedy we had. But there was one moment that happened that turned the whole city around and helped comedy put comedy on the map. I remember it well because I had heard the rumors that a guy who never came to Boston to see anybody, Peter LaSalle, who was a producer on The Tonight Show, he wasn't actually the producer who normally looked at talent. That was Jim McCauley. But Peter LaSalle was in Boston to look at colleges for his child. And so he was coming in and the call came in that he was going to stop by a comedy club in Boston to see some talent. And he decided to go to a place in Inman Square, Cambridge called the Ding Ho, which was a Chinese restaurant slash comedy club with a bar inside with the television on in Inman Square, Cambridge. And... He decided to go there. He told the people in charge to put a lineup together, and the lineup was put together with comedians like Jack Gallagher, who was great back then, and Lenny Clark, and enormous Boston talents like Don Gavin and Steve Sweeney, who would draw. Steve Sweeney was a guy who would perform three shows on a Friday night in a 400-seat venue and sell out every single show and he never had a television credit it was an area that was just booming for comedy and they really rallied around their own bob goldthwaite was asked to perform on the show and one of the other people that was asked to be on the show was stephen wright peter lasalle comes to see the lineup and watches everybody does well he says thank you he walks off into the night he calls stephen wright he says 
I'd like to fly you out. You're going to be doing the Tonight Show. And he was asked to do the show on a Friday. And back then, there's no cell phones. There's no email. Stephen Wright hangs up. He's stunned. He calls his parents. He calls every comedian he knows. He calls every friend he knows, every single person to tell them about this call. No one is home. Can't reach anybody. But the fact is, one of our own in Boston was doing comedy on The Tonight Show, the greatest, most validating thing that a comedian could ever have. Because back then, there was nothing else for you to do except maybe daytime shows like Merv Griffin or Mike Douglas, but nothing with the reach of the millions and millions of people that Johnny Carson could reach. I remember this well because I had won a contest in Boston called Host of Evening Magazine, where I had written in a postcard with like over 100,000 people, and they chose me, and I went in this competition, and I won the competition. The co-host won these Evening Magazine things where, you know, aired at 7.30 in Boston, and I won, and I won a 25-inch television, a video camera, a Watchman, a Sony Watchman, and... Here it was, I'd found out that Stephen Wright was doing The Tonight Show on this Friday, and I wanted to be in a situation where I could share that with my audience that was at the comedy club. But there's no cable, there's no plasma televisions back then. All I have is the rabbit ears on the television, and I'm wondering how am I going to do this, but I don't care. That Friday, I go in my house, which I lived across the street from the comedy club, I unplug my television. It weighs about 75 pounds. I pick it up and I carry it. And I'm walking through the streets of Boston across the street to play it against Sam's. Down the stairs, I get a stool. And I put it on the stool and I plug it in to Channel 4, which was NBC. And I bring my Sony Watchman and I got that to Channel 4 in the dressing room. And I'm ready to share this with the audience in Boston. And <laughs> I remember the host was a comedian named Jay Charbonneau. And I told him I would give him the light and tell him to get off when we we're going to show it. And we announced to the crowd that we were going to show one of our own, Stephen Wright, going on The Tonight Show. And in the middle of the show, stopped the show, turned up the volume. Again, put the microphone next to the television. That's all I had. It was a little snowy. And that crowd of about 75 people on Friday watched Stephen Wright do The Tonight Show for the first time, along with myself and the other comedians. And it was a moment that I'll always remember for my entire life because Johnny Carson had a system with comedians that was well-documented but never spoken. If you were a comedian that went on and he never wanted to see you again, he would just say, thank you. Nice job. If you were a comedian that went on and he wanted to see you again, he would say, thank you, nice job, and he would reach up his hand and give the okay sign. Those were the two main things that would happen 99.999% of the time. But there was one rare thing that happened this particular night that in the history of the show total in the 30 years of the show had only happened five times and that was at the end of Stephen Wright's set when he said thank you good night 
Johnny Carson looked over to him and he didn't necessarily say thank you, nice job. He didn't give the okay symbol. He gave another symbol. Come over here. Come on over, Stephen. Sit down with me. And he invited Stephen Wright to the couch, something so rare for a comedian. And that night, what I took from that was this. If you're any artist at all, I don't care what you do. I don't care what profession you're in. What Stephen Wright did that night as an underdog was he was just completely undeniable and he blew everybody away with original content, original ideas, and original performance. And if you can do that, you will rise to the top of your profession, whatever you're doing. I don't care if you're a comedian, a musical act, or if you're a lawyer. If you can do things that are outside the box and you get your moment, make sure that when you get your moment that you do everything in your power to blow people away. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in showbiz and you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So the big moment, I think, for you with Johnny came when his contract with NBC was up and he was becoming a free agent. And this was a situation where finally you saw the light at the end of the tunnel where he could get a really great payday. And also he was being in a situation where he was being offered many things from many people, including ABC who offered him twice as much money as anybody would offer him to come to their network. Talk about what you saw with Johnny as far as what could happen with that negotiation and how you got him to be the highest paid person in television history. On St. Patrick's Day, I think 1979, I was in New York to meet with Mike Weinblatt of NBC to tell him Johnny was going to retire at the end of October, on the anniversary show, that was going to be his last show. So, fellas, you got six months to find a new host and see ya and good luck. That was my mission, to tell him he was quitting. Now, that, that was serious. The, the contract had two years to run, so it was not a question of uh, he was a free agent. He was not a free agent, but we took the position that he had been their employee for seven years, and under California statutes, that's all you could hold anybody to is seven years. Then you got to be a free agent. And that that came from, from old case law, Olivia de Havilland and the studios, where the studios wanted to lock you up for as long a term as they could. So there was case law, and NBC said, no, wait a second. We renew, we give him new contracts every couple of years. I mean, come on. This is, this is nonsense. Yes, he's been with us more than seven years, but he has had eight contracts, and he's making like tw whatever he was making at the time. Uh, my position was, yeah, he may have gotten all these increases, but he was never a free agent. 
He never had the opportunity to measure his worth on the open market. And so we, we wound up in a lawsuit with NBC. And the result of the lawsuit was that he was a free agent. And by that time, interestingly enough, and I'm sure you've seen this before, he had changed his mind. He says, you know, what would I do you know, if I retired? He would have nothing to do. So he changed his mind, but fortunately we beat NBC, and the result is we obtained ownership of The Tonight Show, and he continued to work until 1992, at which time he was then making, I said, $40 million a year. So that's that's sort of the progression. And it was during that lawsuit that ABC was sniffing around to see if they could interest Johnny in coming to work for them. And we had all sorts of interesting negotiations. It took place here. It took place on a yacht yeah, uh, south of France. And you also and, met at Joan Rivers and her husband's house as well. Right, right here in uh, in Bel Air. Which and, is very odd because later on, Joan Rivers did something that really, really damaged his psyche and created more trust issues. But so here he is negotiating things where he trusts somebody and then later on. But we're going to talk about that, too. So let's just talk about that deal for a second. So when you and Johnny meet together, you obviously have a plan. You don't go into a negotiation without a plan. And back then he owned nothing and he was getting a salary and I don't exactly remember the salary was making in 1979 or 1980, but you had to sit down. It's like when Ray Romano and his lawyer, Jonathan Moonves, went into negotiation against his brother, Les Moonves, at CBS. He had in his mind a number that he wanted for that last year. They settled on $40 million for the last year, but you don't roll out with $40 million. You roll out with a number above that, and you see what you can do and however it was. But your plan, which was fascinating, and I have to give you credit for it because I'm certain that Johnny didn't sit down with you with an outline of exactly how he wanted things to go. You were in a situation where back then the networks didn't really understand the value of content. The term that Steve Jobs coined, content is king, the networks didn't understand the value of the content after it aired. They, they had no knowledge. So you had the vision of knowing that, hey, these guys normally tape over a lot of these things. We want the whole library and we want to own the library. And the lawyer on the other side probably said to himself, you know, what? who cares? So for you, how did you have the vision of knowing that that content would be valuable? Because I want to share something with our audience here. When you did that deal and you got Carson the ability to own all those past episodes, you almost immediately made a deal that netted him $25 million for all the content that he had shot thus far. And that didn't even include the content that he was going to shoot in the future. How could NBC not know if they'd have just held on to that, the $25 million a year you got him as a salary they could have paid from just selling off the tapes and they would have gotten Johnny Carson for nothing. How could NBC have no vision and Henry Bushkin have all the vision? I think you'd have to ask someone from NBC, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, we, we picked up on some language in the, in the contract and it had to do with the creation of, of material, you know, how it got created. Now, 
writers take credit for creating material, but writers don't get ownership of material, you know. On talk shows, they don't. Uh, well, in, in my world, okay, I'm not, I'm not identifying any other type of show other than the Tonight Show. And so uh, many bits were written by very famous writers. So Woody Allen, for example, was a Tonight Show writer. And, and many of these characters were, were emanating from these brilliant writers, but Johnny got to own the characters. And so <clears throat> I talked to various people, and they thought it would make a good show, and we did sell it. We sold it for $26 million to Columbia, and it was called Carson's Comedy Classics. So it it's, isn't enough that you make a deal... For Johnny Carson to make $25 million a year, but then you do the content deal that gets him $26 million. So Johnny is making $51 million from that deal just in the first year alone. Well, uh, the, the, the intent was to own The Tonight Show. But by this time in the negotiations, they had given up, if you know what I mean. They had thrown up their hands because he wanted to work. They had to keep him. We had agreed on on salary. We had agreed on what what the numbers were. We agreed on vacation. And there are a lot of things that go into an agreement such as his. But the, the uh, demand for that content, they sort of had given up by then. So... I can't say it was a great negotiation. We got it, and we made good use of it. And you got ownership of The Tonight Show. Now, when you look at it, I always talk about this. There's three kinds of deals. There's a deal where if I'm negotiating with you, I finish the deal, and I throw my hands up in the air, and I'm like, yeah, we got them. There's a deal where you throw your hands up in the air and say, yeah, we got them. There's a deal where you say, eh, it was fair. There's no way that after that deal got negotiated, you said in your mind, after you got ownership of The Tonight Show, ownership of the content that you sold for $26 million, $25 million a year, there's no way that you could look in the mirror and say, yeah, that was fair. Well, the result of that, all of what you've just said, was Johnny then made me a partner in, in the business that was created out of that uh, Carson, Carson Productions, Carson which was another thing in the contract that they negotiated where they would form a production company, which NBC would fund the office space, the employees, everything, and they would the development and Johnny would get five projects that he could do at NBC or NBC Productions that basically would automatically get a go. I mean, it, it, for, for, a, for a show, for him to develop like a scripted show, to not get picked up and go on the air would mean that it would literally have to be like the worst thing that was ever made in the world. And there were a few of those, but uh, many, many, many of those. But so you make this deal and when you're starting to realize how much money he's going to make, when a guy is about to make $50 million and you're making $6,000 a month, you know, you have to sit down no, and have another no, no. conversation. The, the Six thousand a month was in nineteen seventy-two. 
Okay, let's not presume that eight years go by and I didn't get a raise from six thousand. But let's say you got raises. Maybe I don't know, but most bosses aren't the type of guys that just walk in the office and say, "Hey, I'm going to give you this." No, you. But you have to. You have to understand that Johnny was a performer and an entertainer, and showbiz was his life. He knew how things worked. You know, ten percent to him was standard, meaning. You deserve 10%, so I'll pay you 10%. But not for a lawyer, it's not standard. No, no, no. no. But forget the lawyer, okay? Lawyer. How is can I forget the lawyer? I'm looking at the lawyer. But, but lawyer, lawyer often transcends. There are lawyers that run companies, and they're not running them as lawyers. They're running them as executives of companies. By this time, I was running the various companies that we were creating. John McMahon was the West Coast head of production for NBC, who we hired. Okay. He was the one who had produced the five series for Carson Productions, none of which was a hit. They all failed. He, he then was fired, and Ed Weinberger replaced him. Then we had started to have some hits. Legendary Ed Weinberger. Right, the legendary Ed Weinberger. So, look, the business itself was not successful for some time. It became successful. It was never a financial loss in that sense. It was always financially successful. But when your name is Carson and it's called Carson Productions, you don't like seeing failures. I mean, come on. You just don't like it. So Barry Katz Productions doesn't want to see Barry Katz Productions have failures. You want to see hits. So he was getting annoyed, you know, from a... From a uh, CEO standpoint, he was getting annoyed. How creatively involved was he? Did he read the scripts? Not Did he bit. make any Not notes? Not a bit. Not could a, care less. Could care less. We set up offices on Riverside Drive. We bought a building on Riverside Drive five minutes from NBC, so that he could stop by on the way to work. You know, boost morale, say hello to people. And how many times did he stop by? Uh, maybe two. You know, in two years. Um, it's just, it's it's uh, counterintuitive that you would think that would happen, but that's how disinterested he was in business, as opposed to the Tonight Show, and he loved the Tonight Show, and in in my world he was certainly the best, and I think in everybody's world he was the best. But when you think about it, if he had stopped in 1985, and had a continuum through his auspices. He would have been much better off than going to 1992 and being kicked in the butt to get out. You know, it was sort of a, an ungrateful end to a brilliant career. You know, that could have been changed, but it was his life, and he didn't want to give up to The Tonight Show. He should have given it up earlier in my world, and I was urging him to do that, and he was getting more annoyed at me for doing that because if he continued through 1992, which he did, we never had the ability to hold anybody to replace him. There's, when are we going to go in? You know, like, when is he going to retire? So we couldn't hold anybody because he wouldn't ever give an end date. That was a big problem for us. Now, if he owned The Tonight Show, how is it possible that the Tonight Show name lives on, and you never see a Johnny Carson title card because, after. Because we owned it during his time period. Got it. During his time. They, the Tonight Show was always theirs. It was never his. It started before him, 
and obviously it 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 continues very well today with Jimmy Fallon. So they own the Tonight Show, but he did during his time. Now I think you'll also note that when you see rebroadcasts of it, they don't say the Tonight Show. They say the Johnny Carson show or they say something and all the videos I think eliminate the name Tonight Show because that truly is owned by NBC. But what I was saying is that if we had a logical successor, we would have continued to own it. Got it. Now, uh, I know from uh, being a manager, you know, you're dealing with a lot of artists that are broken. They're geniuses, they're brilliant, but they're broken. And a lot of them suffer from alcohol abuse, drug addiction, sex addiction, and consequently, the things that happen in their life make them angrier and angrier and angrier, and the littlest things can set them off. And in any situation where they don't feel like they have control, they want to avoid. And that's why so many celebrities just stay at home. They stay in their homes. They live their life and because they know the minute they go out of the house to do anything, the variables are not in their favor. And one of the things where I always, as a manager, learned the hard way, and it's one of the most difficult things, every artist that's worth anything is always asked to do benefits. Always asked to do benefits. And there's always somebody who comes up to you and says, listen, be a personal favor to me if you did this for me. It would mean a lot to me. My sister passed away from this disease or my mom has this disease it'll be a personal favor and once you say yes you know you're doing what's called in the jewish religion a mitzvah but you're also putting yourself at risk and putting the relationships that you have of trust and with the people around you at risk because nothing ever goes the way it's supposed to go and there was one instance in the book that was so fantastic, a story that basically twisted your relationship with Johnny into a balloon animal, no matter how much he trusted you, how much he believed in you. And even with your marriage, where you were in a situation where you were working so hard to keep it together and you thought, hey, you know, I'll bring my wife out to this thing. It'll be a wonderful thing. It'll be all expenses paid. This will show her that I'm a good man and I'm going to take care of her. And you convince Johnny to do this thing that I want you to talk about and tell our audience how it all went down, how you convinced Johnny to do it and what the consequences were during the production that led to the demise and the beginning, in my opinion, of the demise of your relationship. Well, you have to remember this incident was months after the success we enjoyed against NBC. The new contract was done. The production company was formed. Uh, so that was like November 1980, and this is January 1981. So it's a year maybe or two after I'm declared his best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and, and months after this, uh, as you say, this type of victory that you sort of stand up and cheer. Yeah, we did it. You know, what a great thing. So uh, it wasn't me who convinced Johnny. It was, it was Frank Sinatra who asked Carson 
to host the inaugural gala for President Reagan. Now, President Reagan was a friend of Carson's and he was a friend of Sinatra's. And they oftentimes went to the same party. So this is the fact that Reagan is now a president was shocking to most, you know, of the inner circle. But nonetheless, he was now, you know, the president-elect of the United States. And he asked Sinatra to organize the affair. And Sinatra asked Carson to host it because Reagan really wanted Carson. And I was really the intermediary. I was the one making the arrangements after Johnny said, geez, you know, Frank really put me on the spot. What could I do? I, you know, I couldn't turn it down. I said, well, you know, you've agreed. We have to go through with it. So, so for me, my marriage was then on the rocks. And that, that weekend presented itself as a reconciliation sort of weekend. And the inauguration obviously was in Washington, D.C., and they were providing you to the, the best hotel in D.C., and, and everything was we had wonderful. two limousines, military escorts. We got to all the parades, all the events, and uh, we went to very few. But the point was it was, it was sort of this gala weekend, and I thought my wife and I could figure out a way to continue on and and, and, and conceivable thing that could go wrong went wrong and coincidentally johnny carson's marriage was having some problems and but now he'd signed the new deal and he could be in a situation where he could take care of his wife a little extra money and this trip also was limousines beautiful presidential suite probably everything all taken care of but also though what Johnny didn't plan for was that his wife, the littlest, tiniest things would set her off. And when those things set her off, they would set him off. And when those things set him off, there was only one dog to kick. Well, and that was Henry Bushkin. Well, Barry, have you ever been in a circumstance like that? Come on. Everybody who's a manager or a lawyer. <laughs> no, age, never. 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 Right. I was the dog to kick. And and the moment uh, occurred after a series of screw-ups. And finally, the event was over. And we were going to no parties. Nothing. We were having a private dinner. Uh, but talk about the series of screw-ups. Well, well, the series of screw-ups began with the with the roster of people performing at the inaugural gala. Carson felt at least he deserved and the public deserved to see first-rate talent at inaugural gala and he felt Debbie Boone was not such, you know, he thought Rich Little didn't quite fit the bill. <laughs> And most normal people would agree with that. That's not like what America—I mean, they're great artists. I don't mean to demean them as artists, but— No, but what's fascinating is back then, you got a guy like Johnny, who you think is so gracious with talent, and behind the scenes, you know, people that he's had on The Tonight Show several times, like Rich Little and Debbie Boone, in the background, he's saying, oh, these f hacks, I can't believe Sinatra, he might be a great artist, but he's a f producer. You, he said those exact words, actually. <laughs> <laughs> you must have been there. <laughs> but that's what artists do. You're sitting, you know, I've been there in those rooms. You're in those rooms and you're seeing an artist just pass somebody in the hallway and saying like, hey man, how you doing? You're doing such great work. Unbelievable. Keep it up, buddy. And they walk out the door and they're like, oh, what a f 
I'm hacked. Man. <laughs> and that's what you work with. And that's what you can't believe that Johnny Carson is like that. But then, yeah. so, it, you know, he's so, upset about that. So, but then I just wanted to want you to share a little bit about this thing. So what happens when you're putting a benefit together, and I hope you don't mind, but when you're putting something together and you agree to do something that's a benefit, this is where it all goes astray because you say stuff like, listen, would you mind if you send me the contract or the benefit? Barry, don't be a jerk. It's a benefit, okay? There's no contract. There's no money. We're going to fly you in and put you up and do whatever. Everybody's doing it for free. Okay, but my client really wants Barry, don't be a dick, okay? Stop it. And so you do that, whatever, and your client goes in to do the benefit. They get to the hotel, and the hotel room is not necessarily the way they want it to be. And they call you up, and they say, Barry, what the f***? This suite, it's a junior suite. What's going on? I mean, I, you know who I am? I get a suite. When I was in Vegas, I got a 5,000-square-foot suite. What do I do in this little... I put the key in the door. I break the window. This place is sucks, Barry. This is your fault, man. Fix it. And so then you go to the producers and you're like, listen, um, could you guys do me a favor? And I would like to upgrade to another thing or whoever it is. And then they say, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, uh, there's no rooms available. And you got to go back to the person. So then you get to the event or whatever and wherever you are. And this is what else happens. And this is what happened to uh, uh, Johnny. You get there and you find out. There's cameras everywhere. There's film cameras. There's, there, there, there's, well, a, there's well. a big crane. There's everything. You find out they're filming the event, and ABC is filming at the network that right. you passed on. And insult. And they're making $6 million from the production of the sh shooting, and your client isn't making anything. And your client comes to you and says, what the f are you doing Barry this is going on ABC they're making six million why are you protecting me do you care about me as an artist I'm like well yeah I, I do care about you but it was a benefit and it was you know and for Carson it was like if you know Frank Sinatra was the only guy from what I read in your book as well the only guy that Carson feared he felt uneasy around Frank Sinatra the only person that I know of, besides I, I a divorce say, attorney. I wouldn't say feared. He didn't fear him. He respected him. You know, he, he, they, they liked one another. They knew each other for a long time. And Carson had a great Sinatra bet that he would always say if you asked him what he thought about Sinatra, he would say, it'd be my luck to be on a plane with Sinatra that crashes. And the headlines would read, Sinatra and others die. <laughs> <laughs> that was Johnny's biggest fear in life. Johnny was well aware of that, and his his act, his Las Vegas act, which he got paid two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year at the. No, I'm sorry, a weekend, a weekend at a weekend. Caesar's Palace. But but his act would be such that you would swear he was saying F you, but he wasn't. You know, but you would swear that he would have said that to somebody, and it's just the way he said it and the tone of voice and the look, and he got away with it. That's why when you use an, an occasional piece of language, you can get away with it. Certainly, I felt that way in my book, and, and I know he felt that way in life. You know, you just don't use language like that unless you get a really big laugh out of it. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, and you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience 
after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to BarryCats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So all these things are happening at this event, and one by one, he's calling you, he's telling you, Henry, you don't have my back, you don't have my back. Well, the, and then the, 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 but the, the final... Mar Marty Pacetto was the director. Now, Marty Pacetto was a director who he hated. But you only found out that he was the director that because night. he found out that night. So here's a guy that he hated because <laughs> Marty Pacetta had done another special where he hosted the Oscars. Johnny hosted the Oscars, and Marty Pacetta was the guy who was the director. Now, back then, the Academy Awards were not live, okay? I believe they were shot, and then they were edited for television later that night. It might have been a quick, it might have been an hour, and they might have shortened the monologue by a minute or two. Yeah, so he hated Marty because Marty edited his monologue of the Academy Awards. So now he's yelling at uh, Henry again, this guy, you fucking director, you got to make sure what... So it was Henry's job and Johnny's to make sure that this guy was not going to edit anything out of this television special. Which I had no way of doing. I didn't even know where he was, you know. He could have been at a truck somewhere, you know. I had no ability to say anything about editing except they knew one of the conditions was you could not edit his monologue. That was the only condition. And so, and so he finally gets that concession. And so then they afterwards, it's a successful event. Carson doesn't really think it's successful because he's gone through all this horrible stuff, whatever. Then Carson's wife, Joanna. Whoa, 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 whoa. But, but you have to understand that in this restaurant, uh, Walter Annenberg, who was then U.S. ambassador to Great Britain, was there. There were some senators at this private party and televisions all around to watch the broadcast to see his mom. This is the tape delay broadcast. And so it's a, and it's a party that's thrown for Johnny. It's in his honor at this restaurant. And here Henry is sitting at the same table. <laughs> famous people, you know, senators, ambassadors, whatever. And we're watching and Johnny, of course, realizes that they fucking edited the monologue. This prick has done this to me again. And, <laughs> and he demands that the television be shut off. <laughs> so everybody's there to watch so the we're thing. They're celebrating now in mourning, you know, like, like it's a horrible moment. But there's there, but there's then there's an even worse moment for Henry. Henry finds out that Johnny's wife, Joanna, was sitting in the seventh row of the theater of the Academy Awards, but Ed McMahon's wife was sitting in better seats. <laughs> so then Joanna tears Johnny a new asshole, and who does Johnny kick? Well, no, no, no. It, it didn't exactly happen like this. We're all in a state of shock, you understand, because of this television show that has gone awry. You know, Marty Pacetta has just <laughs> fucked him again, and how dare he? 
you know, and we're all, we don't know what to say. You know, this is like we're trying, and there's a restaurant full of people, and nobody knows what to say. And all of a sudden, moments into this silence, his wife becomes hysterical. She starts crying at the table. And I was like, what is she crying about? Like, what's happened to her? You know, so Carson, who has little tolerance for anybody other than himself at moments like this, and I'm sure you never met people like that, turns to her and grabs her like, what the f*** is going on? And she then tells this tale of Victoria McMahon actually sitting with Frank's wife in the fourth row, and she was in the seventh, and how embarrassing for her, and how dare Bushkin allow this to happen. So that must have been a chilly conversation with you. What did Carson say to you? Right. Well, he then, he then called me. Meanwhile, you're there with your wife. You're trying to get together, have a great weekend, and you're getting call after call. Of people. Right. And, and it was a complete debacle. And I left the next morning. And the, the interesting thing, he says, well, I'm not going home today because the president invited me over to the White House, and we're going to see the president at the White House. So and just, said, uh, just stop. Saying, Hopefully this is going to solve things. And I'm like, maybe you'll feel better. You this know? is like, the big thing. So he, this is one thing that Henry was involved in arranging this visit with the president the day after. So he goes, he's thinking, maybe if I leave town, Carson won't be mad at me, and then he'll meet the president. Everything will be wonderful. Yes, I, I didn't arrange it. Sinatra arranged to meet the president, not me. So he was going at Sinatra's invitation to meet the president, and he went. And what happened, Henry? He was given a VIP tour of the White House, which he refused to go on and stormed out of the White House. And so did the call go to Frank Sinatra yelling at him or did the call go to you? I was on an airplane, you understand, you know, like I was on an airplane the next day when he was going to the White House. So by that time I arrived back at my apartment, there were five, you know, we had answering machines, you know, you turned on mm -hmm. answering machines. There were five screaming messages. <laughs> <laughs> How I screwed up this stay in Washington. Why didn't he why didn't he call Sinatra? You ask Frank. <laughs> so, and so your marriage falls apart because of this weekend. I, I felt I was totally fired, you know. I said, this can't get any worse. I don't know that feeling. <laughs> right. And I couldn't believe that this was happening months after we had just created the um, is now his partner. He's, he's now going to get rid of his partner of five minutes, you know. <clears throat> but... Uh, Things were made right several days later, but it wasn't until several days later that the trauma sort of left. The trauma died down because um, the call came from the president and his wife to Joanna and uh, Johnny apologizing for all the things that happened there. So that kind of gave you a reprieve. The president called Johnny to apologize for the seating. Could you imagine the president of the United States calling anyone in the world to apologize for where their seats were at some silly event, because that's what the inaugural is. It's a silly event, you know, it's just parties. And this, I thought, was the end of my relationship with Carson, seriously.
and screwed uh, up seat, which which was about as far from where you are to where I am, you know. So it's silliness. So but you've never seen that before. No, surely. never, never seen that before. Of course, I have. It's uh, incredible. I want to talk about something here because we could spend a lot of time on the marriages and the divorces of Joanna and and how you know the prenup cost him. $35 million. And we could talk a lot about the alcoholism or the infidelity. And but you'll have to read the book for that, I think, because there's not enough time to talk about everything. But one thing I want to talk about that sort of relates to what we do here on this podcast, besides, you know, because I, I think this has been very inspirational, not just your journey, but Johnny's journey and the things that you deal with as an artist, as well as somebody who's representing an artist. But you came into Johnny's life because he trusted you. You found people in his life that were doing things behind the scenes that were not on the up and up. You discovered people that were not communicating to him the things that they were doing. Even if they had communicated them, some of them he might have been okay with, but people who didn't communicate tell him exactly how, full disclosure. And consequently, agents, managers were fired. You were there who saw, saw that. You saw in the 80s with one of the people that Johnny trusted more than anybody, anything else in the world was Joan Rivers. He loved Joan Rivers. He had meetings with ABC at Joan Rivers' house when he was doing the negotiations in 1980. He gave her guest shot opportunities. And when she was offered uh, to do her own talk show at Fox and with her husband being an executive producer, she didn't communicate with Johnny. They said that they talked to you and they left messages for you, but the documentation shows that uh, they didn't and they didn't communicate or else you would have communicated that to Johnny. Their relationship deteriorated and Joan was another person that uh, disappointed Johnny and violated his trust. And what I want to talk to you about, which is a really sensitive issue, is that for 18 years, you saw all the people in his life that made Johnny Carson not trust them and made him lose faith in humanity from wives who took him over the hurdles for millions of dollars uh, to his mother who was ungrateful and he, he didn't even go to her funeral. When she died, he exclaimed, the wicked witch is dead, and he blamed her for f***ing up all his relationships with women. So all these people, Frank Sinatra, who let him down at the inauguration, the director who f***ed him over, all people who did things behind his back and didn't communicate, and then in the 17th year or so of your relationship, you made some decisions regarding Johnny Carson's business that were similar in tone to a lot of the decisions that these people made that damaged and tore apart their relationships and ended relationships. Why did you take the risk of doing these things and not communicating with him, knowing everything that you saw in the past? And what was the impetus for doing those things and tell our audience the things that I'm talking about. Well, I, I believe what you're talking about is after his company was put up for sale, 
uh, I went to his investment bankers and advised. I was no longer representing him. I was fired. Uh, pardon, pardon me. This is you're right. This is this is before I went to the investment bankers, attempting to sell his business that I created for ninety million dollars. The and, one that you had ten percent of. Right. The one that I had ten percent of. And <clears throat> but you didn't tell him you did that. I I, I was approached with Ed Weinberger by another company to see if we would be interested in running their company. I know that, but you didn't call Johnny and tell him that. No, I told his bankers that this offer was out there if they couldn't get a better offer. So I, it was never intended to be told to him. It was why, to, why not? Because there was no reason to tell it to them. All well, that, how much of the $90 million would have gone to Johnny? Everything but 10%. Okay, so why wouldn't he be told? Because his investment bankers were told if they wanted to communicate it with him. But you're his best friend. It, this, was, this was when I didn't want the company sold. They, he wanted it sold. We were really at odds. Okay, we weren't really communicating very well about anything at the time. He wanted to shut the company down completely. Because of all the failures of the sitcoms and he didn't want no, to be associated with failure? No, that we had now great success. And he didn't want to bother with all the meetings that would be required to run a successful and growing production company. It had nothing to do with But the, he was never required to go to meetings. Ed Weinberger was the man. I mean, he was that, like the Chuck Lorre of the day. I mean, You bet. And, and yet it was a bother because Ed Weinberger had to fire Johnny's son. Now, you could imagine this circumstance where the son is coming into work as the stage manager on the set, and he's drunk every day. So it, it goes on for just so long. And then you yeah, say, John, and we, Johnny's we, son ended we, up committing suicide. No, well, 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 well it's uh, he tried to commit well, suicide, and his, the, 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 the circumstances of his death were unexplained. Look, this is when he was working for Carson Productions, the son, and Weinberger couldn't stand it anymore, and he fired him, and he left it to me to tell Johnny that his son was fired. Uh, he wouldn't call Johnny. He wouldn't do it. He refused. to you refused to do it. So I did it. So that created a, just a rift between the two. Now you have to understand that Weinberger was a writer for the Tonight Show in 1964. These guys went way back, you know, and they, Ed knew every bit of Johnny's personality, every bit of it, because Ed has a similar personality, you know. Yes, he does. Very narcissistic, very self-centered, only thinks about himself. And, and when you have two guys like that, both very successful, it, it led to Johnny saying, screw it. I'm done with this. Close it down. You know, and, and that's what happened. So it was, it was, we knew that my time was coming to an end because my life was invested in this company. This was like seven years of my life now. And he, on a whim, he wanted it shut down because of the firing of the son. And that so that was in your mind. That's the reason why oh, you shut was, it down was the firing was, of a son. It, that was absolutely the reason that it happened. Now it didn't happen that day, but 
it, he, he then had a hard on for Ed Weinberger because he fired his kid. You know, he never, he couldn't admit that the But kid he didn't just blame Ed Weinberger. Well, look, there's a dog to kick, right? So if you're the manager, Barry, you get the call. Come on, you get the call. Tell me in your mind, true serum in your veins, why were you fired? What did you do wrong? That you, if I were to ask you, Barry, you would tell me, Barry, this is where I did something wrong, and I admit I could have done it a different way, and I didn't, and I deserve to be fired for that one thing I did. Okay. What was it? I, I, okay, I would say, can't give you that simple an answer. I could say that that Johnny <clears throat> suffered greatly by virtue of his mother. He suffered, uh, I've since found this out, a, a narcissistic personality disorder. Now, when you compound that with narcissism, and then you get a supernova sort of narcissism because the guy is actually a superstar and he suffers from, from a, a, a behavioral disorder. He really did. So I would say that it reached a point in my life where I couldn't deal with it anymore. I couldn't deal with him now being omnipotent. There was no discussion about anything. It was simply my way, and this is what I want, and you better do it. So I would say that I outlived my usefulness. I wanted to do it my way, and if you didn't want to do it his way, that was it. So at some point, that's if I did something wrong, that was it. And and if you if you work backwards, you would say, well, you never should have started a production company. You never should have, because what did he need it for? You know, he died worth half a million, half a billion. So what if he died worth two billion? Would his life have changed? Not a bit. So I think in 1980 or 81, I think you were right. The downhill slide began. Because as my interests diverged from his, where the goals differed, I think that's where the end began. Well, the end began when you signed that deal for 10% of the deal, when you became a partner with him. Because when you become a partner with an artist, what happens is you're responsible. When you're managing an artist, the great part is, is you're the cabinet. You're the person who makes it happen with their talent. When you partner up on something, if something goes wrong at that production, guess what? You're the person responsible. If you're managing somebody and they're doing a deal with another production company, or even if they're doing the deal with their own production company and you're helping, you are not responsible. They cannot point the finger at you. So when Tom Brunell with Chelsea Handler took the job of being a partner in Chelsea's production company, as opposed to being an employee or working on something, you know, there's more... There's more responsibilities, more things that can happen. There's more things you got to worry about. And if you're doing your job the same way you did it before you took that position, you're going to get fired. You have to navigate and change the way you figure out how to deal with the artist when you are partnered with his money. I wish I knew that then. Okay, well, now we know. I wish I knew that. I wish I knew that many times myself. Until, um, all right, we're going to ask you some questions, and then uh, we're going to ride off in the sunset here. Tell me about uh, the meeting between Johnny and Elvis Presley. 
That was my first visit to Las Vegas, and it, I was there to convince him to sign the prenuptial because it was around that time that he was <clears throat> getting ready to marry Joanna. And so I was there, and he he sent me, along with my cousin Richard, who was a lawyer in California, uh, to see El the Elvis Presley show at the International. <clears throat> and, you know, it was a big deal to me to see the show. We had great seats because Carson arranged it. And the next night... I went to see the Carson show in Las Vegas, first time I had ever seen it. And uh, I then went backstage and just sitting and talking with him. And all of a sudden, Elvis Presley shows up. He was, he was in the wings watching Johnny Zacht waiting for one of the Sahara girls. And so he stayed for the whole show. And once uh, Johnny was backstage, he, he came up, of course, they called and Elvis came up. I was sitting there and, you know, like, wow, you know, I was like in, in shock that I was there. And, and he came in in a, in a white rhinestone you know, jumpsuit, you know, it was like typical Elvis, you know, with the cape. <laughs> I mean, it was it was quite a scene. And, and the two had lots of fun for, you know, five minutes. And uh, but it was a very cool experience. Tell me about a story with Johnny that is something that your relationship with him, anything, it could involve a celebrity, it could involve infidelity. What positions like that were you put in with Johnny where you were, you couldn't believe that you were in these situations? Oh, there were many, you know, far too many to describe, but I'll give you one that I just couldn't believe I was involved with. We belonged at the time, both of us, the Beverly Hills Tennis Club. I still belong to the Beverly Hills Tennis Club, happily so. It's on Maple Drive in Beverly Hills. <clears throat> and uh, Johnny was hooking up with a, a well-known performer and needed a place. And my secretary at the time, her boyfriend, had a condo on Palm Drive. Who was the well-known performer? Uh, well, let me finish the story. <laughs> I'll tell you the performer. So... <clears throat> So Johnny convinced my secretary to ask her boyfriend, since he was in New York, if it would be okay if he used the flat whilst the boyfriend was in New York for occasional dalliances, all of which would be followed up by a cleaning crew and, and you know, gifts and whatever, you know, thank yous. Money? Not money, but, you know, I mean, nice gifts. I mean, uh, nice, expensive, significant gifts. Unlike Bob Hope. I'm talking significant gifts like a piece of Steuben glass or a piece of Lalique or so something yeah. nice, you know, that you anybody would enjoy, like like your fine bottle of uh, tequila. or I hope Regalia vodka. Oh, vodka. I'm sorry. Bill Bellamy <laughs> Regalia vodka. So, so uh, but... So uh, right around the corner from the tennis club on Palm Drive, Johnny is having these, these uh, what I would call assignations, and it was with Ann Margaret, you know, right around the corner. And she's married, and he's married, and I'm really not involved. It's my secretary that's done this. But <clears throat> she used to do a lot of these things for him, and, and that became a problem for me because he was calling her to do things that he knew I wouldn't do. 
like go to the Beverly Hills Hotel and get me, you know, sign, you know, register Henry and I'll show up and just bring so and so, you know, like get gifts and bring them to the room. Things that guys with plenty of money and plenty of opportunity and plenty of uh, sort of uh, I don't give a shit type of attitude, <clears throat> which Sinatra had and many, Bob Hope had it certainly, and Carson had it. He wasn't that unusual. But putting, put, being put in these awkward situations happened frequently. But uh, one of the quotes that Carson said when a lawyer found out for his wife that he was having an affair, he said the quote, him, a stiff prick has no conscience. He would say that often, you know, <laughs> as as his excuse, you know. What was the impetus for writing the book? What happened to make you say, I can do this? You've never written a book before. You're an attorney. Um, what was the thought process between in your mind for writing the book? And did you ever think it would be a New York Times number one bestseller? Okay, I don't know where to start. Let me start with <laughs> with the book. Uh, I actually began writing a novel, and and that's because I was traveling between Saudi Arabia, this country, and China <clears throat> quite frequently. And when you do that, you realize you're in airports and on airplanes a long time, you know, sitting around, waiting for meetings, going to Saudi Arabia for two days of meetings and it takes like four days to get there and back <laughs> and you regret being there in the first place you know it's like one of those things so I had plenty of time I started writing a novel and at the Beverly Hills Tennis Club Ed Hookstratton who had been Johnny's lawyer after me said why are you writing the novel why don't you write about your time with Carson everybody wants to know about him I said well what about you he said I didn't really know him I just did his work. You knew him. You should write the book. That's what gave me the impetus because I was already sort of in a writing mode. And for the writers in our audience, so, you, you know, you go and you have a germ of an idea. From the time you sat down at your computer for the first time until you finished the first draft of the book, how long was that? Well, I did it in longhand. I didn't do it on computer. I did it on... Uh, Goes back eight, to your history of, yeah, uh, of contracts on long That's what I did it. So I started in 2008, and it wasn't until 2010 that I thought I had enough chapters, six, to show an agent to perhaps get a big-time agent. And so I was able to. I was able to get a big-time agent by the name of Wayne Kayback, in New York. What's the company where he's in? It's it's his own. I forget the name of it. But he. How many people did you submit it to who passed? Uh, we, we only submitted it to agents, and we actually got quite a number of responses. And how many publishers did you send it to that passed? Well, I didn't. Wayne Kayback, I only sent it to agents. Wayne then took on my representation and sent it to publishers, and ultimately he sent it to all the book big-time publishers. And at the time, they said, love the book, love the material, but Carson's not relevant. So in 2010, I was told, love the book, love the pages, Carson's not relevant. So it wasn't until 2012, like two years later, that I decided I'm going to just 
take another pass at this, try to do this in another sort of voice, if you will. And that's the one that ultimately uh, Houghton Mifflin bought. Did you get another agent? Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I had, a, I had another agent. Uh, but that was by happenstance, actually. But Isn't that what I it's had, all about? I, I had another agent, and, and he, did, he did a terrific job. And fortunately, the results of the book are such that I get to write a second book. So that's, that's a cool thing. It's fantastic with more money. What's your proudest moment in your career? Well, I don't know that the proudest moment in my career has to do with Carson, to tell you the truth. It doesn't to, matter? No, it had to do with a, a nine-week jury trial that I tried in 1992 where the jury was out for two and a half weeks over Thanksgiving and a uh, 12-person jury and and finally came back with with a proper award plus punitive damages. And I think that moment for me was the proudest in terms of the work I had actually done as a lawyer. Awesome. Yeah, it was. I thought so. What's your biggest professional disappointment? Wow, I think I have many. You know, I think my biggest professional disappointment was not not taking care of any other clients other than Johnny. I... I I was able to obtain many clients, but pass them off to other lawyers because I just didn't have time to deal with them. And I think that's my a professional regret that I allowed him to take up so much of my time that I wasn't able to build up another client base. One sentence in your mind, if somebody said, you get to describe Johnny Carson in one sentence... What was it? What a, is it? A brilliant performer who, despite being complex and complicated, remains the gold standard for every late night talk show host to, uh, to stand up to. Robert Morton, who we had on the show, was the executive producer of Letterman for 15 years. One day he was called in the office, said... We're going to make a change. I said to him, after getting the haymaker just completely knocked out, did you ever have the desire to watch Letterman again? And he said, every night. He was the gold standard. After you got the shit kicked out of you and you were out of his life, did you still watch The Tonight Show? Never. Never again. I mean, I watched Jay Leno for a couple of nights. But I didn't see Carson's last night, and I didn't regret not seeing it. I thought it was sad. Why would you not watch any of—you spent 18 years with the guy. Why wouldn't you watch another show? Because I was, at that time, that bitter at, at how bitter he had become. Your bitterness that you feel never comes out to me in the book. But I didn't feel it when I wrote it. See, that's the cool thing. I was able to sponge myself and, and find a voice that, that resonated so that you, you really appreciate his brilliance even further when you realize how screwed up he really was. And is it, is it a bad thing to say that this was life, this is how he was? No, I don't think it's a bad thing at all. I think people deserve to know 
how good a performer he was because that's what he did. He performed, you know. It was like a great actor every night went out and did a great performance. That's what he did. It wasn't him in real life. That's that's the dichotomy. That's where that's the disconnect. People think it's got to be the same guy off camera, just witty, charming, jovial, funny. No, often the opposite. So final question, uh, what advice do you have for young attorneys out there who would love to be in a position to move the needle without overseeing a break-in? And what advice do you have for young performers who want to try to make the kind of mark that Johnny made, and once they get there, how they can stay there without all the house of cards falling down? Well, I think, first of all, you have to remember, before Carson got to Tonight Show, he had been working in television and radio and doing stand-up for a long time. You know, so he wasn't a novice. So what I did in my career as a young lawyer, I don't know that it's possible to do that again. I don't know that a superstar would go to a three-year lawyer and say, take over my life. Now, it's possible. And and to those who it may happen to, I say, you got to go for it. You know, you just have to go for it, you know, step up. Now, I didn't think of myself as stepping up. I thought of my my time with him at those early days as I got to do as good a job as I could do just to have another day. You know, I had no self-confidence whatsoever in the beginning. I just did what I thought I had to do to show him I at least could do something right. And what advice do you have for the performers out there? To the young performer, I would say just you got to do what you got to do. You got to work your ass off, you know, in clubs and bits. And Carson started doing magic shows, you know, started doing magic bits. And he got very good at it. And, and you know, the pattern that you have to have with magic, you got to divert the audience. So he became very good at that, and that became a foundation for radio and for television. I don't know that you could do that today, but if you could, I would do it. I would start as young as you could. I absolutely would. Awesome. This yeah. has been tremendous. I think it's cool. Thank you so much for taking so much time with me. This has My been pleasure. an honor. My pleasure. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.